We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Okay, welcome to, again, our Wednesday night presentations on Zoom. Um, and I hear our bell ringing at our parish church. And so we'll begin with a prayer before the presentation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother Holy Mary, of God, God, pray for, pray for us. us now and the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. The magnet heart of Mary, pray for pray us. us. Good Saint Joseph, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Mm. Well, again, welcome to our webinar uh, with a topic which, according to the email that we sent out earlier, is going to be on uh, the notion of vaccines, vaccinations, uh, the immune system, lots of topics like that, but it's a topic that I think is very timely, obviously. Uh, as we begin this um, presentation, uh, however, just, just a couple of things to keep in mind. First, that, um, uh, that Pam, who will be interviewed today, will be providing some, some reference uh, things, uh, links and uh, other sorts of resources that can help with uh, this particular topic if people want to dive more deeply into it because uh, it is a very timely topic and a very important topic even morally speaking um, but then also there there is an issue of a certain warning that has to be given um, because when we discuss early on in the presentation the sort of unethical ways in which some of these vaccines have been generated. Um, there's some ugly things, um, very ugly. Um, and so obviously for the young ones and for younger ears that don't necessarily need to be exposed to some of this ugliness at this moment in their life, um, you know, we may, may want to be very careful with, uh, as parents, you know, the judgment you make on that. So. Obviously, it's not going to be utterly a, a graphic display, but still, it's just, just hearing some of these things, uh, it hurts people's hearts, um, adults, and so obviously would hurt children in a special way. But let's begin. Uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the coronavirus, um, and the news surrounding this epidemic, or what some are calling a pandemic, or some are even called a planned-demic, uh, 
has dominated our lives for nearly three months. And we know the story. We know the story quite well. We were told early on when we got news of this virus coming towards our shores that we were to sort of seek to flatten the curve. Um, we didn't want to overwhelm the medical system. Uh, we didn't want to overwhelm the intensive care units. And so it all made sense to many of us initially uh, to sort of follow some of the directives uh, that were uh, put in place. And many accepted the strategy. Um, just give us a few more weeks, they, they, they told us, they asked. Uh, but then it went from a sort of a containment strategy to contain the virus to one of mitigation, uh, what they, you know, like a total lockdown. Um, and for some executives, even within the church, it seems, there's like no end in sight to this. Um, we can't open up until there's more testing. That's what they sometimes say. Um, that was the next condition. As some people say, the goalpost keeps being moved further and further away. But now, and this is the important part today, now many are telling us that further extensions of this particular lockdown or versions of it are required until we get a vaccine. Everything is about the vaccine. That's how many look at it. Vaccines, they tell us, are our only real hope. Ignore possible therapeutics, forget about other measures to somehow prevent the virus, but rather introduce a new vaccine. This alone will save us. And so we've come to the topic of our presentation for this evening, the topic of vaccines. And I just wanna, before I introduce Pam Acker, just some of the headlines that, that I've been reading and perhaps you have in your uh, viewing of news over the last few weeks. Um, this is from Reuters, which is a famous news service. Uh, the United States plans, I'm quoting, a massive testing effort involving more than 100,000 volunteers and half a dozen or so of the most promising vaccine candidates in effort to deliver a safe and effective vaccine by the end of 2020. Um, that's again from Reuters. Another uh, particular uh, news item, which was very publicized of late, volunteers who received Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine, that's one of the uh, big pharma companies involved with uh, producing the vaccine, had positive early results, they tell us, according to a biotech company, which partnered with the National Institutes of Health, NIH, we've heard a lot about that lately, to develop the vaccine. One doctor stated, we are developing at a pace that has never been done before. There's, there seems to be urgency in this for many. Trying to think that a year after a virus has been identified, we will have a vaccine ready to deploy and ready to go into massive distribution. <laughs> Emphasize massive distribution. And then the person states at the end, it's simply mind boggling to me that one could have this turnaround virus and then a vaccine so quickly. We'll touch on that quickness in a part of this presentation later. And then uh, a final sort of couple headlines real quickly. President Donald Trump today announced, this is a, about a week ago, that the, uh, an army general, the commander of the Army Material Command, will co-lead an effort dubbed 
Operation Warp Speed. Again, that urgency to get the vaccine. To find the vaccine for COVID-19 by January 2021, the goal is to produce, and this is an interesting stat, the goal, this is from the Department of Defense website. The goal is to produce about 300 million vaccines by January. That's a lot of vaccines. And then finally, sort of a, a, a not a funny, but just sort of a, an ironic sort of headline from a British newspaper, because um, Britain is also seeking to develop a vaccine as well. And in the British newspaper, it writes, developing a vaccine for the coronavirus could prove difficult due to the declining number of infections. Researchers in British Britain warned, and then it ends by saying the main issue they say is that the virus may be disappearing too fast for the studies to produce meaningful results. And then they end by saying, this is very weird, we are in the bizarre position of wanting COVID to stay at least for a little while longer, but cases are declining, unquote. So that sort of proves to be a little bit of an introduction, but I want to introduce someone who can actually help us. Um, and that is one of our parishioners, Pam Acker, who many of you know, of course she has helped out so well in our homeschool co-op um, on Thursdays, at least when we had in-person uh, classes. And of course she's been doing Zoom presentations for our students as well. And she's a val valued member to our community, um, but especially in what, sort of expertise she brings. So not only a traditional practicing Catholic, but also a person who is equipped to answer some of these questions. So Pam, Acker, um, would you be able to just introduce yourself a little bit and then maybe provide some information on your interest in this topic of vaccines and your background and your connection with this topic of vaccines? Sure. Um, so I've actually been interested in vaccines for over two decades. And it was vaccines that propelled me into biology in the first place. So in the late 90s, um, uh, the Danforth Center, which is part of Monsanto, was looking at genetically engineering um, plants to make edible vaccines. And that, uh, that didn't pan out. They ended up having problems with, with dosage as, as well as um, problems with just delivery and the genetic engineering part of it. But um, that, that interest still remained. And around that time, I learned about Children of God for Life, which I know you're going to talk about a little bit uh, as well later, Father. Um, that's an organization that uh, promotes awareness of the use of aborted fetal cells in vaccines. And so I knew this was a huge pro-life issue. And um, I've always been pro-life, but I, I'm, I'm not the sort of a demonstration type. And I wanted to find a way that I could help with the movement. And so when I went back to graduate school in 2010, I specifically wanted to work in a lab that was developing vaccines. And I wanted to do that so that I could develop ethical alternatives to aborted fetal cell derived vaccines. And so I got accepted into Catholic University of America for a PhD program in uh, the Rao lab. And I was, they were working at the time on an anthrax and plague project that um, used a, a naturally occurring virus as a delivery mechanism for a vaccine. So it, it would be done in a, in a, a bacteriophage, so something that normally infects bacteria, 
and those particles uh, could be modified. The idea was they would persist longer in the body than a subunit vaccine and they would be safer than a live vaccine. So you couldn't actually contract the vaccine from it. Um, and it was really just a, a fascinating uh, new idea. Um, but it, it turned out that uh, by the time I got into the lab, we were working on HIV vaccines. And that was under a grant from the Gates Foundation. And so sort of all hands were put on deck to, to um, develop the particular aspects of this vaccine. And one of the cell lines that was in use in the lab, I didn't, I didn't realize this until uh, we kind of had a shift in our, our focus, was called HEK293. And I asked in a lab meeting one day what HEK stood for and they told me human embryonic kidney. Mm. So um, at that point, I expressed uh, some ethical concerns to my primary investigator who um, was very, very resistant to uh, looking at any alternatives to the aborted fetal cells because um, that was what was being used in the literature in most HIV vaccine programs. And so he was very kind of focused on, you know, this is what's been reported, this is what we should do. And of course we were under, um, we had the, the first part of the grant, we're ready to apply for the second part of a grant. And so we were under the gun in terms of time and to switch research at that point, he felt like would cost us the grant money. So uh, he kept using HEK293 cells and I don't have a PhD. Uh, I have a master's degree and I left the lab. So, but I spent a year working on vaccine development and so got the bench experience that way. And then for the past year, I've been doing um, more research in terms of journal, reading journals and reading books and um, looking into the history of vaccination, the, the biology behind vaccination, You're just kind of trying to figure out everything that we know about vaccination. And um, that's uh, really, uh, been a focus for me for the past year. So I've had time since I got uh, injured and, and with my ankle, had time to devote to reading all the things that nobody has time to read. <laughs> um, so I'm happy to share those today. Wonderful. Um, so at that moment, when you were at that uh, Catholic University of America and that particular lab, and you, you really wanted to find an ethical, a moral, proper sort of vaccine. You, you saw that as something that was, you know, good and something worth pursuing, especially to counteract the unethical uh, oh, vaccines that were being generated. So again, you mentioned it was H-E-K. Is that, is that the mm -hmm. first three? So human embryo. Yes, H-E-K. Yes. Okay, so you're talking about, this is an aborted fetus and kidney yes. cells or right. tissues. Okay. So right. um, you wanted to find an ethical way to produce vaccination. So if you could go further into that, because it was obviously a good goal, and that's what Children of God for Life, which you mentioned that website, which I think everybody should be aware of that website, Children of God for Life, um, to, to find ethical versions of vaccines. So if you could please explain the again, more fully perhaps, the unethical or immoral origins of some of these vaccines. Because, you know, I've heard sermons about this uh, topic on, on um, you know, uh, various channels on, on YouTube and other places. Um, we're back in the 1960s, um, a number of uh, women with child who happened to be, you know, had contracted rubella or jingle measles and had passed it on to their 
offspring within the womb, um, that somehow they were encouraged to have abortions purposely for the sole purpose of, you know, getting a vaccine. Um, literally, so little ones almost being dissected, if you will, uh, and then somehow that live virus from one of its cells being taken and again used to produce vaccines. So if you could kind of go into that topic just a bit, I know it's it's ugly in some way, and I think I mentioned to the parents early on who might be viewing this and maybe children are here, just, just be a bit careful here because um, uh, it's a bit ugly. So but go, go ahead, Pam, if you could. Yeah, this, this will be the part of the, the talk that you, you may not want little ears to hear. Um, so uh, one of the, the things that I, I sort of ran into when I was discerning whether or not to stay in the lab was, you know, what, what level of, of moral evil here has, has been committed, you know, and um, I think a lot of people are, are willing to kind of maybe not, not look into this as much or think it was maybe one abortion or two abortions or something like that. But um, you're absolutely right, Father, that, that the, there was, there were several labs that were involved almost in an industry uh, in terms of taking aborted fetal material and trying to isolate things in the laboratory. And the, the number of babies that were aborted um, trying to isolate the rubella virus for what is now the rubella vaccine um, was 67. And the, the, um, the cell line is, is RA 20 or 273 and the RA stands for rubella abortion. And uh, the 273 stands for, it was the 27th aborted baby and it was the third tissue. But, but after they isolated this virus, they, there were still 40 more babies that were aborted for subsequent experiments. And they were, um, as you said, uh, really dismembered um, and their tissues were used. And, and there were um, another 32 abortions that were done to obtain the cell line that the virus was then cultured in. So when you're making a vaccine, um, you need to be able to replicate the, the virus if it's a live, a live virus vaccine. There, there are basically three types of, of vaccines and, and um, measles, mumps, and rubella are, are, are live virus vaccines. And so the virus has to replicate in something in the laboratory. And what they chose to have it replicate in was, was human cells. And these were also aborted uh, uh, tissue um, cell lines. And these were, they're called immortalized cells. They don't live forever but they're modified using viral DNA so that they can persist in cell culture somewhat indefinitely. They do have sort of a shelf life after, after a certain number of, of subcultures, you'll end up, the cells will end up dying. So they're not, they're not indefinite, but you can use them for, for years. So this was done in the 1960s and 1970s when, when this research was going on. And it was very brutal. Um, the babies that were aborted, you know, initially when I was doing um, my research about the HEK293 cells, there was sort of this idea that, well, maybe these were spontaneous abortions, so, so maybe these were miscarriages that were happening and the tissues were just used after that, or, you know, maybe it was a, an elective abortion that was done in, in sort of a, the normal way and then the tissues were used after that. But these abortions were carried out very um, particularly using cesarean section to, to actually deliver uh, the infant whose heart was often still beating when the researchers went to uh, work on it, work on the baby. So 
um, this is, uh, you know, and this happened 99 times for this one vaccine. Mm. And this is not the only vaccine that's, that's been developed with aborted fetal cells. Um, right now in the U.S., the, what's in circulation is um, with aborted fetal cells is, is the rubella vaccine, the chickenpox vaccine, the shingles vaccine, um, polio, at least one of the polio vaccines, the hepatitis A vaccine, um, and then rabies and Ebola and HIV are in development using aborted fetal cells. And they're actually um, more vaccines than just these that have aborted fetal components because there are often vaccines that are trivalent or that have like three different kinds of vaccines in them, like the MMR. So even though only one component is using aborted fetal cells, then the whole vaccine is contaminated with aborted fetal cells. And there are nine more cell lines that are being used for um, vaccines and then also for the development of other therapeutic products. And there's a list of this on Children of God for Life. Um, there's some products that are used for treatment in cystic fibrosis or heart conditions that are produced in these cells as well. And um, those nine cell lines required 76 other abortions. And the most recent one was developed in 2015. So this isn't a problem that's confined to the 1960s and 1970s. This is a problem that's, that's been continued up into you know, the current decade. And this cell line was developed in, in China in 2015 because they were looking to replace two of the other cell lines that had been developed in previous years and that were, they were not able to access in China or were um, senescing, they were getting to the point where they were, they were old and they were not as culturable in the lab anymore. So this isn't a problem that, that happened once upon a time a long time ago. It's a problem that's continuing to happen today. And, and the use of these vaccines is fueling a market for um, having, searching for more aborted fetal cell lines. Because again, it kind of going back to what my, my advisor said, this is what's in the literature, this is what's been done. There's a lot of things that, that we don't really understand how vaccines work in the body, that we're not going at this from a basic science perspective and saying, okay, we understand all these components, how they work. It's, it's more of a trial and error process and you eliminate some of the trial and error if you make your current conditions as similar to previous conditions as possible. So there's, it's in the best interest, you know, in a sense of the researchers to continue to use aborted fetal cell lines. So this is a huge, huge ethical problem. So there's a number of pretty famous vaccines that perhaps a number of uh, countries have, you know, you know, requested or, you know, kind of suggested that parents uh, have their children or vaccinated with. Um, but, you know, for, for our purposes too, um, obviously we just read from that headline that there's going to be 300 million vaccination shots available by January 2021. That's the hope. That's a lot of shots, almost getting close to the population of the country. Um, but people are asking, what about this, uh, you know, this uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus and the vaccine that they're trying to make? Where does it come from? What's, what is its possible origin? So um, I'm not sure where they're isolating the virus from, but the, there, there are 19 different um, vaccines in development right now for SARS-CoV-2, which is kind of staggering. Um, and seven of them are being produced in aborted fetal cells. So they've been cultured in aborted fetal cells. That means the virus is being grown in, in those cell lines. And actually out of the seven fathers, six of them 
are are um, in the HEK293 cells, the same cells that I was dealing with in the laboratory ones, 10 years ago. Exactly. Yeah. So um, one of them is in, is in per C6. Um, but uh, the... The, the one that you mentioned at the beginning, Moderna, that's, that's um, being tested here recently, that one is, is in aborted fetal cells. And that one, I believe, from the headlines I was reading, is the one, one of the ones that Dr. Fauci thinks is particularly promising. So it, it seems likely that the candidate that will be eventually developed for distribution in the U.S. will also be made using aborted fetal cells. So you can definitely say that there's evidence that at least a number of the companies producing this vaccine or the number ones that are bidding on this or whatever the competing are definitely yeah. using unethical um, fetal tissues from aborted fetuses. And you think that Moderna, which is the one that seems to be racing ahead and, uh, you know, testing, you know, in a, in a, what, what they're calling a very sort of uh, uh, positive way, it looks like it might work. That's the one that uh, you're pretty sure that that is definitely a yeah. That's that's made in HEK two nine three cells. Okay. Wow. So um, what I'm going to do real quick is just go through um, uh, you know the Children of God for Life website that Pam mentioned, uh, which is a very good resource for understanding the need for ethical options regarding the vaccinations. Um, uh, Anyway, they, they inquired about this topic uh, of vaccinations and sort of the unethical origins of some of them. And they, they wrote the Holy See and the Pontifical Academy for Life um, took two years and actually some fairly uh, thoughtful um, uh, sort of two years to put together an answer for them. So I'm going to go through what at least an advisory board for the Holy See has written about vaccination. So um, the Pontifical Academy for Life delivered its opinion after two years. Um, and when you read the document, it's a very negative assessment of these unethical uh, sort of vaccination, vaccinations that have come from obviously uh, fetal tissue from aborted uh, fetuses. Um, it does add uh, that Catholics are permitted to use such vaccines temporarily, with that em being emphasized, uh, until this is obviously changed. Um, the Vatican Statement is entitled Moral Reflections, you can look this up on the internet, Moral Reflections on Vaccines Prepared from Cells Derived from Aborted Human Fetuses. It stresses, the document at least, stresses the failure, emphasizes the failure of pharmaceutical companies and health authorities to produce ethical, non-abortion-derived alternative vaccines. And unfortunately has created, uh, for many parents in particular, almost a moral coercion uh, to a force that you have to use what would be um, abhorrent to people. Uh, and the Vatican says it must be eliminated as soon as possible. The document as such supports the position of children of God for life. It denounces the use of tainted vaccines, it calls it, and it asks for alternative vaccines. That was something which Pam was 
working on, if you remember her saying that before, the document invites uh, and speaks about the duty, the duty of parents, and that's a strong word, to put pressure on governments and companies to offer alternative ethical vaccines that don't come from these bad sources. The document speaks clearly about conscientious objection. You know, I object to this. This was the main point of the document. And such, as such, I do think the children of God for life have there a very useful instrument to put pressure on local authorities in order to get exemption of vaccinations for their children in schools, for example. But more important is the lobbying to get alternative vaccines free entrance into the U.S. market. So that's from the Holy See's document. Um, again, a very negative sort of view of things uh, regarding this matter. Um, so I think that's something which uh, is worth looking at uh, regarding the use of these unethical vaccines derived from the fetal tissue of aborted babies. And this is obviously, you know, something we should be aware of. Um, as a final note on that, um, the cooperation, obviously, people who are producing these vaccines, people who are marketing these vaccines, this is something which is illicit, all right? There is, again, this sort of remote, to use sort of fancy moral words, remote and sort of di more distant cooperation, which is not formal, but sort of a material cooperation that is with evil. This is an evil thing. Um, that is a temporary thing with the hopes of getting an alternative because there's nothing else available for at least the U.S. market. Um, but, you know, we're going to sort of switch gears just a bit because we've spoken about what is obvious, the unethical sort of uh, vaccines that are uh, available in some cases for some particular viruses. Um, but I, I want to talk about the notion of vaccines now in general, even if they were ethical. But I want to, I want to ask Pam though, and I forgot to do this earlier, just the notion of what are vaccines? Um, where does it come from? Uh, what, what are the origins of vaccinations, inoculations, immunizations, all this programs that we're very familiar with today, but, but what is a vaccine? All right. Um, so the vaccination came from, I mean, it's, it supposedly came from uh, Edward Jenner. He's usually credited with it, although about 20 years before he did his experiments, there was another gentleman who um, already it inoculated his wife and, and son with, with cowpox. And centuries before that, people were using um, processes like variolation and taking trying to take scabs um, from people with smallpox and, and, and gently infect other people, if you will. But they didn't really understand this idea of attenuation, which has become sort of prevalent in, in current vaccine culture. So I need to kind of back up and explain that a little bit. And the idea is that if you get infected with a weaker virus, once you see the real thing, your immune system will mount a response to the real thing. And you will, you will have sort of kind of um, sort of like giving a scent to a dog that's trying to pursue something like you'll, you'll, you'll have shown him the sock and he'll find the man, you know, so you'll, you'll have shown the immune system 
a, a weakened form of, of a pathogen or disease-causing agent. And then when it encounters a, strong, encounters a stronger form, it knows what it's looking for. It can mount a better response. It's called a memory response. So uh, people had noticed at the time that Edward Jenner uh, started his um, vaccination program that the if a dairy maid was infected with cowpox, so she's working with the cows and actually acquired a disease similar to smallpox, but much more mild in humans because it normally infects cows. And so it's not well adapted to infect humans that they would be protected against future infection by smallpox. So he actually took material from the pustules on the hands of a dairy maid. So they weren't even actually from the cow. And he in injected that material into they year old neighbor boy and his son and um, then then later exposed the eight-year-old neighbor boy purposefully to smallpox. So, and he didn't contract a, a clinical infection. They didn't at the time know about subclinical infections where you can actually have the, have the virus but not be expressing disease, normal disease symptoms. So we're not even 100% sure if this was completely protective. And it was an in-value of one, which is kind of problematic because the, the experiment was done with, with one individual. So it's not very robust. And what most people don't realize is that Jenner went on to inoculate both his son and uh, the neighbor boy several times over the next 12 years, and they both died in their early 20s of tuberculosis. And another thing that people aren't, I think, aware of is that the, the original practice of vaccination was very similar to what Edward Jenner did, where mater disease material was taken from one human being and put into another human being. And that caused the transmission of all kinds of bloodborne diseases. So this caused um, transmission of tuberculosis, it caused transmission of syphilis, it caused transmission of, um, once they started culturing uh, the vaccine in cows, it caused transmission of foot and mouth disease. So people were getting infected with all kinds of other diseases because they were having this disease material injected into them. So the, the idea that, you know, being infected with one disease can be protective against another disease is not necessarily a bad idea, but the, the methodology that it was, it was carried out with, even from the beginning, was not good because they were infecting people with things that they, that they weren't necessarily aware that they were infecting them with. And this wasn't a problem just in the 1800s. It's been a problem as recently as the polio vaccine, which carried, um, was cultured in monkey cells and carried uh, the SV40 virus, which has now been um, temporarily linked to the development of cancer. So there, throughout the history of vaccination, there's been sort of carry along pathogens that get passed along when you're, you're injecting the, the pathogen of interest into the body. And the name, of course, comes from the Latin word for cow, vaca, because it was cowpox as a vaccination. Um, and, you know, the, the, the kind of from the beginning, the, the promise of vaccines have been that they'll protect the individual from the disease and they'll protect the population from the disease and they'll eventually result in the eradication of the disease. And, um, those are, those are some pretty heavy promises, and I don't think they've been delivered on. So uh, with your leave, Father, I'll, I'll maybe go into that. Sure. Tell you what, l l let me just lead you with something else as well. Because um, I do want to, uh, you, you mentioned Dr. Jenner, uh, who supposedly is given credit, at least he may not be the, the first one to sort of vaccinate, of course, but... Um, given credit that he was, he took a healthy boy <laughs> and injected him with contaminants 
which were cowpox. Um, and then he did it to his own son, I think you said, also a healthy person. Nothing wrong with him, not sick at all. And yet being given a a sort of, at least a a sickness within them, sort of purposely injected. Okay. All right. Um, So maybe this could tie in with, I wanted to go back a little bit with the Vatican statement, which was overall condemns the unethical versions of vaccines generated from fetal tissue from aborted fetuses. But it's in the end, the Vatican, at least this pontifical Academy for Life, and pretty much most churchmen and most sort of, I guess, officials um, are very pro-vaccine. So the Holy See might be saying bad vaccine, you know, vaccines are good, but, you know, ethical versions of them. Right. So I, you were mentioning to me earlier today when we were talking about this that you mentioned like rubella and uh, mumps and um, uh, chicken bite. These are not necessarily deadly diseases. And right. um, so go, why don't you take, take, take it from there, I guess. Sure. Um, so, so one of the statements that the, that's made by the Matifical Academy of Life in the document that you referenced earlier is the the argument that you know these these vaccines are are unethical in and of themselves, but permission is given to use them because there there seems to be um, a pressing need for the for the greater good of society to protect people from diseases. And the specific disease they mention in the document is rubella. And the um, the rubella is a very, very mild disease in, in children. Um, most cases of rubella, you don't even notice that the kids have rubella. It very rarely requires any kind of um, excessive treatment. It um, is really only dangerous in pregnant women during the first trimester. So if a pregnant woman catches rubella, she will probably pass it along to uh, the baby that's developing in utero. And this can cause congenital rubella syndrome, which can cause blindness or deafness or um, some slowness in mental development, and it can even cause stillbirth. So this is, this is a big deal that they're, that they're talking about preventing congenital rubella syndrome. But the, the question really at the, that I don't think the document addresses is whether vaccination does this effectively. And what, what I've learned through my reading is that prior to the introduction of the vaccine, we had approximately 80% herd immunity to uh, rubella. And so that was fairly protective of of pregnant women at the time, because the the goal of vaccination is 80 to 85% herd immunity. We were already at that prior to introducing the vaccine. And the women who were vaccinated against rubella uh, and even displayed protective antibodies for rubella could still contract um, rubella during pregnancy and could still pass congenital rubella syndrome along to their offspring. So they were still having babies that had congenital rubella syndrome. And, you know, on top of, um, uh, <clears throat> uh, on top of that, you know, we're, we're exposing um, individuals to this process that, that are not in any way um, protected by it. So, so for example, there, there's absolutely no reason to vaccinate a male 
against rubella he, he's never going to be pregnant right. so so you don't need to protect him from that um so you're exposing him to a vaccine with all its attendant risks and, and there are a number of attendant risks for the sake of the greater good and that's half of the population that you're vaccinating so that's that's an ethical concern that's not being taken into consideration here and so what we saw is that we're we're increasing the risk for a large percentage of the population and we're not really decreasing the risk of congenital rubella syndrome um, in pregnant women because the the rate of the congenital rubella syndrome didn't drop until about 10 years after the vaccine was introduced even though the number of cases of rubella dropped almost immediately after the vaccine was introduced and it's thought that actually the the reason that congenital rubella syndrome decreased was more due to elective abortions once abortion became legal um, than it was to the actual any actual impact of the vaccine so the argument that that's being made there in that document is is not a very scientifically sound argument in terms of the the ethics of, of necessarily needing to use the rubella vaccine um i feel like there was another point i meant sure. to make well you know i you know and I, I i think i skipped ahead a bit but i, I think i wanted to retrace a few things um sure. you mentioned the rubella especially congenital rubella mother passing on this case of measles to her child in, in utero mm -hmm. as being a real thing that the Vatican was saying, well, we got to have these vaccines. There's no other option. Right. We just want ethical right. sources. Well, there, there actually are other um, effective options. So if a woman, a pregnant woman is exposed to rubella, she can be treated with um, aminoglobulin, which is actually just the antibodies isolated from, from blood serum um, of a, of an, immune individual. And so if she's given these immunoglobulins during the first trimester of her pregnancy, her baby should be protected from congenital rubella syndrome in most cases. It's actually more effective than the vaccine. And then you're only treating the person who's actually at risk versus, um, as you mentioned earlier, you know, this idea of taking a perfectly healthy individual and injecting disease material into them is, um, this is, is something that we've kind of been conditioned to accept. That, right. that this is normal, this is a way of building health. But if you think about it, it's actually quite backwards to take a healthy individual and and expose them on purpose to something that is harmful. Right. You take shots when you're sick. You, you take pills when you're sick. You know, right. that, and these people are healthy. Um, so again, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I just want to go back just, again, the Vatican used that as, you know, the need for vaccinations. But what you mm -hmm. said, and may I just want you to just to cover it a little bit more. Sure. These aborted cell, these aborted fetal tissue cell lines and, um, uh, you know, sources for the vaccines, you know, the Vatican saying, this has to be temporary. We have to get rid of it. We can't continue to have this. And you're saying, this is going to perpetuate itself. And there is no motivation right. in some of these big pharma companies to, in any way, change the um sort of somehow become ethical overnight <laughs> right. so if you could maybe just emphasize that uh from what you've read that you know the the this this sort of protest that we might mount mm -hmm. doesn't seem to be that effective right so so the other the other point that the the document was making was that that this is a temporary um expedient only and to think that it will be temporary is, I think, a little bit naive because 
what I think a lot of people don't realize, in addition to the fact that, you know, they're still in 20 as or late or, you know, latest 2015, there was another aborted fetal cell line that was being developed to replace uh, some of the original aborted fetal cell lines. So this isn't a problem that's confined to the 60s and 70s. It's ongoing. But another thing people don't realize, and, and I learned this when I was um, working in the lab that was using the HEK293 cells, there are whole lines of products that are developed specifically to cater to using these aborted fetal cells. There's media that's designed specifically for them to grow in. Um, there are um, reagents or, or chemicals that are, are used in reactions that are designed specifically to work with these cells and optimized to work in these cells. I mean, if you, if you go on to Fisher Scientific, there's, there's you know, over a dozen products that are designed specifically to work with HEK293 cells. This isn't just something that's just sort of a temporary quick fix. There's a whole industry built up around this and it's not, it's not going anywhere. There's a lot of money in it. And when I was, and I think I was telling you a little bit earlier, father, when I was in graduate school in a cell signaling class, even in that class, about half of the papers that I read were, they were doing their research in aborted fetal cell lines because these are what's available and these are what's been optimized. And so there's, this is an ethical issue that goes, it's much broader and deeper than vaccines. But vaccines have been used to broaden it and deepen it. And so, so back in 1993, um, President Clinton um, pushed through some legislation uh, that that um, expanded the use of aborted fetal tissue in research. And his justification for doing so was the vaccines that are made using this, um, these aborted fetal uh, remains. And then President Bush in, in 2000 also, um, he expanded research into embryonic stem cells. And his justification, again, was, well, we're all, we're using this type of cells, you know, and it has this life-saving impact in terms of these vaccines. So this is something that's, that's continuing to be a problem. There's a whole industry built up around it, and it's being used as a justification to expand into other unethical territories. So um, it's not a temporary situation by any means. And we can see that with the SARS-CoV-2 virus as well. I mean, seven out of 19 possible vaccines are being developed in aborted fetal cells. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous given the number of alternative options that we have that are ethical. Right. So, sorry, I had, sorry, I had to sort of go back on that, but I think it was good to sort of finish up that, that, that uh, notion of vaccines, uh, ethical versus unethical. Um, right. Then you were touching upon it beginning that these vaccines in general, okay, we, okay let's, let's, we have an ethical version of the vaccine, therefore it must be good. You're saying, well, vaccines promise a lot, but they don't necessarily deliver. Because, um, you know, to, 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 the, to, to most people's minds, a vaccine makes sense, right? You, you take a little bit of a weakened version of the virus, or as you said, like sort of subunit, harsh, a part of a, of a virus, and sort of inject it and it sort of wonderfully, you know, excites the immune system and antibodies are formed and all of a sudden, you know, we have paradise on earth. You have, uh, you know, an end to all sickness. And so maybe you could just begin to, to show that um, a lot of promises are made, but, but, but vaccines, the, the notion itself, even ethical versions, don't necessarily deliver on what they promise. Sure, sure. Uh, so, so I kind of um, look at what vaccines are, are purported to do 
kind of under three heads. So they're, they're purported to protect the individual from the disease. Um, they're supposed to protect society from, from the ill effects of the disease, and that includes people who are, are immunocompromised or too sick to get vaccinated themselves. And it's also supposed to lead to the eradication of the disease. So we'll, we'll look at those in order from individual on up to eradication. And, you know, in terms of the individual being protected from the disease, there is a, there is a modest protective benefit conferred by most vaccines. Otherwise, no one would give them and no one would take them. So, you know, I, for example, got vaccinated with the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and I have not had measles, mumps, or rubella. So um, there's, there's, a, there's a disadvantage here to me, though, in, in a number of ways, not having had these um, and having been vaccinated for them. So what, what happens with measles in particular, the the antibodies that are produced through vaccination are not the same as the antibodies that are produced through natural infection. So if I were to um, have a child and that child would be born, you know, with a very underdeveloped immune, well, not very undeveloped immune system, not underdeveloped, it's not just not developed yet. And that child would be very susceptible to measles. If I had been naturally infected by measles, I would be able to pass um, passive immunity through the, those immunoglobulins, those antibodies, through breast milk to that baby while it was in its most vulnerable stage. Because I've been vaccinated, I, I won't be able to do that. So I will not be able to give any passive immunity to my infant. So my infant will be susceptible to measles. So the, the deaths that occur from measles in the United States at this time are mainly among infants. And this was a population that previously was not nearly as vulnerable. I mean, it's, it's still possible that an infant could have contracted um, measles, but it was much less likely because most of them were passively protected from the maternal antibodies. So I haven't actually, you know, I've benefited the individual to a certain extent, but I've also haven't benefited the individual in terms of the individual's offspring. Right. And mumps is another case where the individual is is benefited temporarily and, and in a, actually a very problematic way, more problematic way to the, to the person being vaccinated, especially if they're male. So mumps is generally a very mild disease in children um, like measles and like rubella. And what we're seeing now with the mumps vaccination is that people aren't getting mumps when they normally would as children. They're getting it later as adults. So there have been a number of outbreaks of mumps across the country. You can look this up on the CDC's website. The largest outbreaks uh, were in Arkansas and New York, and they were 3,000 people apiece. But there have been outbreaks every single year for the past 20 years, and they've involved hundreds of people, mostly in college campuses. And this is particularly problematic because if, if males contract mumps over the age of 14, it won't kill them, but it can actually cause them to be sterilized. So the the, what we've done is by vaccinating the individual, instead of protecting the individual from the negative aspects of the diseases, we're actually pushing the disease off until later, which makes it more negative for, again, for half the population. And rubella, we kind of covered already. Um, you, you're, you're protecting yourself, you know, from contracting it as a child, but you're not necessarily protecting your child from congenital rubella syndrome, um, because we know that the having vaccine-induced antibodies isn't necessarily protective. And there's a, another um, uh, aspect to all of this, is this contracting of childhood diseases that, that has kind of been lost because it's not as immediate, but there's, there's a number of papers that have been released. They're, they're um, retrospective co cohort studies looking at people who've contracted cancer or developed cancer versus people who haven't developed cancer. And what they're seeing is that the people who don't develop cancer are much more likely to have contracted one or more of these childhood diseases as children and their immune systems have resolved it and, and they, have, they have gotten better 
and they're now there's a protective effect against cancer for having had measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, or several other of childhood um, diseases. So you're actually now eliminating that protective effect in the individual as well. So it's it's really um, not you know, hands down good for the individual. And that's leaving aside any safety concerns, which I know we're going to get into more um, uh, next time. Mm -hmm. So uh, so it doesn't really deliver on the promise of protecting the individual. It's very temporary. And um, some of the vaccines are extremely, extremely temporary. For example, um, hepatitis B, 60% of people are thought to lose their protective antibodies to hepatitis B by adulthood. And yet we vaccinate for hepatitis B when you're an infant. So we're vaccinating infants who are not at risk for contracting this disease because it's, it's usually um, contracted through promiscuity or, or intravenous drug use, which infants are not at risk for. <laughs> and, you know, within three years, 38% of them have lost their protective antibody. And within, by the time they're adults, 60% of them have lost that. So it, it's, um, it's a phenomenon. It's so common it has a name. It's called secondary vaccine failure. So the vaccines just don't they don't protect you as long as natural immunity does. And they don't protect you in the same way that natural immunity does, um, as we see with the measles and not being able to, to pass on that to your offspring. So uh, the second way that we're kind of failing uh, with vaccines delivering what they're promising is in terms of, uh, you hear a lot about herd immunity. We have to have herd immunity. You know, everybody, enough people have to be immune so the disease can't circulate in the population. That's basically the idea. The idea behind herd immunity is that you know, if enough people in the population are immune and I get sick, you know, the likelihood of me encountering somebody else who's susceptible is pretty low. So I'm not likely to, to pass the disease on. It's not likely to keep circulating in the population. And in this, you know, in general is true. If there are enough immune people in the population, then I won't have a problem passing this along. But one of the problems with obtaining herd immunity through vaccination is is this vaccine failure that, that that we're talking about. So, you know, you and I haven't been vaccinated for hepatitis B probably ever. And young people who have been vaccinated as infants are not, um, you know, they, they don't currently have their immunity. We have less than 40% than immunity uh, in the population. That's not enough to have herd immunity for this disease. Um, and measles in particular is an interesting one that, that gets thrown up in the news a lot in terms of outbreaks. And, you know, we have to have vaccination coverage because otherwise we're going to have epidemics. And, you know, it's, it's estimated that you have to have 95% herd immunity in order to eradicate measles. Well, measles vaccines have a failure rate between 5 and 15%. So if 15% of measles vaccines fail, you know, the simple math is only 85% will ever be herd immune if we're vaccinating. So we will never attain herd immunity through vaccination. And what we do instead is replace the natural circulating immunity with this artificial immunity that, that requires booster shots and requires, it, it wears off after time. And so you actually have less than even the, the maximum 85 to 90% of people are immune because you've had immunities worn off in those of us who are older. And you don't get a protective effect on the population. And in some cases, you even see a detriment to the population. So, and that happens in a couple of different ways. And one of the ways we see is with that shifting of, of diseases into different susceptible populations. So now children aren't susceptible to measles, but infants are. Um, but that's seen even more with, say, the chickenpox vaccine. So um, 
you know, I, I, when I grew up, there was no chicken pox vaccine. Everybody got chicken pox. Nobody was worried about chicken pox. I came down with it in second grade and, and, and missed having to go to the, the, um, st on a student field trip to go see a, a play about Dracula, which I was very thankful for because I didn't want to watch anything about vampires. So it was providential, truly. Um, but, but nobody was worried about it. It was, it was a mild, harmless childhood disease that nobody went to the hospital for and you just stayed home when you were sick and uncomfortable for a week or two. And then, you know, you went on your way and you were fine. Well, then they introduced the vaccine for it. And what's happening now is that people who have been vaccinated are actually getting chicken pox when they're older. And this is problematic because it's not dangerous when you're a kid, but it's dangerous in your early 20s, your late teens, early 20s, um, and when you're an adult. And what's also happening is since the wild chicken pox virus isn't circulating in the population anymore, children aren't getting it anymore, they're not exposing their parents to that natural boosting effect um, that's, that's actually a product of, of nursing your child through chicken pox. As you nurse your child through chicken pox, you're exposed to the virus again. Your immune system is like, oh, hey, I remember that. I'm, I'm mounting an immune response. You don't get sick. You don't have the disease progression, but you're protected against shingles. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing is, is people, younger and younger people are getting shingles. Um, even people in their, in their, you know, 40s and 50s, whereas before, you know, we were seeing this only in 60s, 70s, 80s. So we're shifting the disease around in the population. And that, that, that's true of a number of different vaccines. Measles and chickenpox are the, the easiest examples to give. And I know you don't want me to, to rattle on forever here, Father. So there's only the one other thing I'd like to talk about with, sure. with um, herd immunity and, and populations. And that's, um, it's, it's an idea very similar to antibiotic resistance, which everybody's familiar with. You know, if you overuse antibiotics, you kill off all the susceptible bacteria and only the resistant bacteria are left. There's a similar sort of phenomenon, it's called strain replacement that happens with vaccination. So we vaccinate people for Bordetella pertussis and that causes whooping cough. And whooping cough is, is no joke, it's a pretty serious disease. It's not like chickenpox or measles. Um, and it, it, it causes, um, I think right now it causes about five to 10 deaths per year in, in infants in the US. So it's about a one in a million um, uh, death rate, uh, according to Dr. Paul Thompson. Um, and it's, uh, we're vaccinating for Bordetella pertussis. And what's happening is Bordetella pertussis infections are dropping. We're seeing a rise in an infection of a, an organism called Bordetella parapertussis, which also causes whooping cough. The problem with this is that Bordetella pertussis is easier to treat if you do actually get it than parapertussis is. Parapertussis is much harder to treat. It leads to um, a more virulent experience of the disease. And so we're replacing one strain with the other. Since we're vaccinating for one, we're, we're giving the other one an opportunity to rise up. And it's, it's sort of like in an ecosystem, if you, if you eliminate all of something, you, you throw things out of balance a little bit. If we could eliminate all mosquitoes instantly, we'd all be very happy, but, uh, but the bats wouldn't. Right. <laughs> um, you know, anything that eats the mosquitoes would, would be uh, affected and anything that eats the things that eat the mosquitoes or is eaten by the things that eat the mosquitoes. There, there's, there's a very delicate balance in, in an ecosystem and there's a very delicate balance in the, the microbes that live in and on us. And when you upset that, you, you tip the balance away from, from one thing, you tip it towards another thing. There's, there's no... Um, there's really no way to, to do what vaccines are claiming to do, which is just eradicate all possible sources of disease and suffering. Um, there are so many diseases that, that we don't have vaccines for, we haven't developed vaccines for, and there are diseases that used to be 
huge, you know, uh, fear for everybody like scarlet fever or tuberculosis. We don't have vaccines for these, but they've, they've dropped off. They, they, the population has attained natural herd immunity. Sanitation has improved. Nutrition has improved. Uh, working conditions have improved. Health in general has improved. In, in first world countries, especially, we're seeing this kind of slower in third world countries, but it, it is happening. Um, and these diseases are simply dropping off the face of the earth. We're not experiencing them anymore, not susceptible to them anymore, because it's, a, it's, um, it's not just the pathogen that causes the disease, that you also have to have the right host and you have to have the right environment. And when you don't have the right environment, even if you're exposed to a pathogen, you won't get sick. So right now you probably have staph on your body but you don't have a staph infection because the environment is not appropriate for that organism to kind of take over and cause disease and cause an infection. I, I may have strayed a bit off my point here, Father. I'm no, sorry. I'm glad you <laughs> went through that. So in the end, it seems that, again, vaccines promise a lot. They don't necessarily deliver on what they promise. And actually, um, this sort of manipulation in our intervention like artificially almost, has tended to truly sort of mess things up. You yes. know, removing viruses from an earlier stage, maybe to a later stage, or we're not having a real holistic immune response, but just sort of these right. activation of some antibodies, but not a real holistic, natural immune response. So right. it's, not as, it's not as strong an immune response, I guess. Right, it's not well, as not well. As cool. well that's that's not entirely true it mm -hmm. it can be a very strong immune response but it's not always the immune response you want mm -hmm. and and that's that's a whole other well that, that that's what i'd like to do to, to sort of end at least this before we take some questions sure um because you told me i can't use unethical vaccines <laughs> obviously we must right. have looked to that and and by the way this notion of a temporary sort of uh, acceptance of the situation because there's no other versions. Well, as Pam said, it's not temporary. This is perpetuated. Uh, so it's time to morally object to these things. Um, Absolutely. But, but then also, even ethical versions of vaccines seem to be, uh, you, you're giving it a negative evaluation. So what am I left with? I'm going to get catch a virus. I'm going to catch COVID-19. Um, but if you could just end at least this section and say, you know, let's talk about the immune system, the beauty of it, the, the wonder of it. And then also maybe it'd be better to spend, instead of spending $1,000 for a vaccination shot, uh, uh, to maybe invest that money in other ways that might create a more healthy environment for human beings, especially those who you know, are poor, been deprived of many things over their life. Right, right. Um, yeah, I do. I do think it's. I, I think it's downright wicked, honestly, Father, to, you know, to take these vaccines into third world countries where people are susceptible to these diseases, and and we know. I mean, I was taking an epidemiology class online through through, um, you know, a completely secular uh, platform called Coursera, where they pointed out that you know we could we could eliminate thirty five percent of instances of, of these infectious diseases just through better sanitation. And we can eliminate about, you know, 20, 22 to 25% through vaccination. So let's work on vaccinating everybody. You know, it's like, that doesn't, 
That doesn't make any sense, you know, especially when you take into account vaccine failure rates, secondary failure and primary failure when the vaccine just doesn't work in an individual for some reason. And we don't know why that happens. Some individuals just don't mount an immune response um, to vaccines, so they, they're never protected. Um, so when, once you, you factor that down, you're, you're, you're ending up with probably less than 20% efficacy, and they're, they're just much more effective things to, to combat against disease. And, um, you know, we really have focused a lot on, on germ theory and, and not so much on, on the idea of terrain or on the idea of the body and the way the body, working with the body, the way the body was designed to work. So our immune systems are really marvelously designed and they're so complex that, that we're still, I mean, the, the stuff I learned in undergrad in 2004 was obsolete by the time I went to grad school in 2010 to 2012. And that stuff is obsolete now. I mean, we, we just, the, the amount of stuff that we're learning about the way this complex part of your body works is, is just, everything is changing overnight practically. And it, it's, it's so complex and so well orchestrated that to push any one thing out of balance has effects that we, we can't even really possibly uh, begin to comprehend at this point. And one, one thing that I think gets overlooked a lot, there's, there's a tremendous relationship. Many people have heard of the microbiome, um, which is, a, you know, this, there's a tremendous number of bacterial cells in the human body. Uh, back in the day when this was first kind of discovered, people said it was 10 to 1. You were, you were 10 times more bacteria than you were human. That's not actually true. It's more like 1 to 1. Um, but you have about as many bacterial cells in your body as you have human cells. And um, the, most of these bacteria reside in your gut. They help you digest things. They provide certain vitamins that are required. In fact, some people can drink milk who don't make the enzyme that digests milk because the bacteria living in their gut are able to digest it for them. So um, that's how important this is in terms of, of um, your, your digestion. But what people are, are just recently discovering is that this is also hugely plays a huge role in your immune system. So the, the, the gut uh, bacteria that you have um, not only is regulated by your immune system, which just sounds normal and natural to us, but it actually in turn regulates your immune system. And if you end up with an imbalance of microbes in your gut, what you end up with is an imbalanced immune system because it creates this sort of self-perpetuating negative feedback loop. And the, the bad bacteria kind of give the immune system signals that, that keep them going, keep them alive, and keep the, the terrain, the body, in a good state for them to grow. And so one of the most important things we can do to stay healthy, and this is a hard thing to do because, you know, as, as we know, there's a, been a lot of monkeying with the food sources that we have. Um, but the most important thing we can do is, is eat real food, eat, eat food that is good for us, it's going to nourish that microbiome that's going to cause healthy bacteria to grow, that's going to keep everything in balance in the ecosystem in our body. And, and that is our, our, our biggest mode of protection is, is just our immune system working the way it naturally works. And then having that properly balanced uh, microbial system in our bodies that is, is going to prevent colonization by pathogenic bacteria. There's just not going to be a niche for them to occupy. And that won't keep you, you know, 100% from getting sick all of the time, but th there's no risk-free option here, Father. And that's what I think people really need to understand. I'm, I'm not going to eliminate all risk by vaccinating, and I'm not going to eliminate all risk by not vaccinating for any given disease. I can still get the disease if I'm vaccinated in some cases. I can, of course, still get it if I'm not vaccinated even if I'm trying to live very healthily, there's just no way to completely eliminate all risk. And so what we're trying to look at doing in, in, in um, 
is eliminate the, the most risk, I guess, and, and try to try to, you know, figure out how to um, work best with the body and eliminate some of the risks of both the disease and the vaccinations. So allow the good Lord who created our very sort of human beings, Adam and Eve, on the sixth day of creation and gave them, uh, of course, at that time, their <laughs> the notion of body being attacked by various vicious viruses, uh, uh, we can put right. that aside. But the fact is that God has created a wonderful uh, immune system for us, and we should try to treat it well as good stewards of creation and not sort of artificially manipulate in a torturous way the natures that God has given us by introducing these vaccines, which may uh, uh, obviously sort of um, not uh, sort of deliver on what they have promised. So right. we're going to take a few questions now. And um, let's see. Um, uh, all right, let's see. The first one, Pam, I, I, I look to you because I, this is, uh, there's a few things that I would be clueless about, but why were fetal cells used instead of non-fetal cells? I mean, when this became the fad, let's use an aborted right. fetus to get the cell lines. I, what brought this on? Yeah, there. Um, I mean, the, the 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 tragedy. One of the tragedies of all this is that there have all along been ethical alternatives. Um, vaccines have been cultured in chicken cells. They've been cultured in monkey cells. They've been cultured in insect cells. They've been cultured in bacterial cells. They've been cultured in non-fetal human cells. So uh, the the options have always been available to us. Um, but there are limitations on all the options. Like we were talking earlier, Father. There's no risk-free environment. Um, you know, eggs, chicken eggs have been um, kind of moved away from because uh, eggs are a common allergen. And so whenever you're making a vaccine, you can't ever purify out all of the uh, material from the cells it was cultured in. And so there's some of that contaminant material present in any vaccine that, that is given. So if a lot of people are allergic to eggs, then it doesn't make sense to make vaccines in chicken eggs. So um, they're, they're there's a balance there that's that's you know legitimate being had between you know different risk factors, but there really was no no justification for using aborted fetal cells. There's there's um, something else going on there. Probably probably you know just a, an attempt to make uh, abortion lucrative in some way or justify it in some way um, would have would have been at the root of that. Okay, very good. So here's another one. This, this sort of touches a bit on uh, the coronavirus topic. So Pam, it says, my limited understanding is that the novel coronavirus has not even been accurately isolated. And then he adds via the lung fluid analysis. I've also read that quote unquote testing doesn't test for a virus, but for antibodies to some poorly known Stimulism and further that the tests being used to register 80% false positives. Then he continues, if that is true, then here um, are my questions. A, how can anyone claim that anyone is sick from the specific virus? B, how can there be a vaccine for a disease which has not been correctly identified? And C, are ethical vaccines safer than unethical? Well, we've sort of answered that already. 
see. But maybe those, yeah, was, how can anyone claim that anyone is sick from a specific virus? And, and, and two, how can there be a vaccine for a disease which has not been correctly identified? Right. Um, so I, I think some of the concerns, that, so the, the test that's done for the virus actually test is, tests for RNA. It does not test for viral particles. So um, there's some concern that it's possibly an artifact uh, of, of normal human processes or even normal microbiome residents. Um, but I, I think this is unlikely given that the sequence that's been released actually resembles um, coronaviruses that were previously identified in bats five or six years ago. Um, maybe even seven years ago. So the the RNA that's testing for is probably viral in origin. So this idea that there is no virus out there, there's the, that this is all a hoax and there's nothing going on, I, I, I can't give much credence to that idea. Um, but the the test is giving a lot of false positives in the sense that uh, that uh, this individual is quite correct. I believe about 80% of the people that they think have COVID-19 are testing negative for SARS-CoV-2. So there's a there's a blurring of the distinction here between the disease and the virus. And so the COVID-19, the symptoms are so generic that that 80% of the time doctors are incorrect about who even has the virus, the, this, the coronavirus, because I mean, there are coronaviruses that normally circulate in the population. Any given year, seven to 15% of people who have the flu have it from coronavirus and not from influenza. So it's not, um, this is not something that's, that's sort of brand new and completely novel and um, uh, unheard of before in terms of, you know, people have been infected with coronaviruses before. This is just a new version of coronavirus. And I think one of the reasons that we ended up panicking so badly about it is because we have genomics now. We're able to sequence the genome and say, oh, this is new. And then, and then what people immediately assume is since this is new, then nobody has any immunity to, immunity to it whatsoever. And, and I just don't think that's accurate because there is some cross-reactivity um, between different kinds of viruses. Certain, certain viruses are, um, if you're immune to them, you can actually have some carryover immunity to other kinds of viruses. So the idea that, that everybody's completely naive to this virus is itself a little naive, I think. Um, and that kind of answers the question. Um, so you'd, you'd have to be able to test for the specific virus and, and find it present. And we really don't know, you know, how many false positives there are. We know there are a lot of false, um, uh, falsely identified people um, as having COVID-19. Um, but, you know, the, this idea that we can somehow develop a vaccine in less than a year for something we just identified is, is, a, is quite frankly more than a bit of a stretch and one of the most dangerous vaccines on the market right now is the vaccine for um, HPV human papillomavirus and it's marketed under the trade name Gardasil and this vaccine was fast-tracked and it was completed I believe in less than two years and the safety testing for this vaccine was absolutely atrocious and um, women routinely die or are maimed and now we're discovering that it actually causes, also causes primary ovarian failure. And so if you've had all three doses of the HPV vaccine, you are, um, you only have about a 20% chance of actually uh, becoming pregnant. So um, the, the, the idea that we, could, we can test a vaccine and it will be actually safe and, and effective in less than a year after it's developed is, is uh, 
it, I think it's going to lead to other problems like we're seeing with the HPV vaccine. Good. Okay. The next two questions are, um, I think things that we will cover next week, there will be a part two. Um, but just to sort of, um, so maybe should have built that at the beginning. Probably. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, uh, the person asks, is Pam familiar with the works of Russell Blaylock? Um, and that question is, you know, what to do if force vaccinated? And mm -hmm. Dr. Andrew Kaufman. And so I think if we could hold off on that, because we're sure. going to discuss next week when, when, when governments in the past, in the past history, there have been forced vaccinations or penalties for those who have not. Mm -hmm. So we're going to cover that next week. And, um, and of course, a person who asked that question also added, uh, you, know, you know, should we resist? And I think that's something which we can also cover next week. Another person uh, uh, asks, and it makes a good distinction, saying that um, uh, it's important to distinguish between, you know, obviously Catholic moral doctrine um, and, of course, uh, you know, various opinions on vaccinations. So obviously we stand strong against any sort of unethical uh, vaccine that has been generated by uh, un unethical means. Um, but then the person adds that, uh, uh, you know, the ethical versions of vaccines uh, perhaps could be very medically beneficial. But of course, you know, obviously I think Pam has tried to point out the fact that um, when you artificially sort of interfere um, with um, the immune system of a human being, uh, you know, you might have some benefits, but there could be some consequences too. Um, and then also uh, a lot of the promises that are made by these vaccines are not actually delivered on. So the fact is, is that, you know, it's like, it's a simple thing. I mean, uh, why vaccinate someone who is, healthy <laughs> um right all right well, um, and one of the things that I, I didn't quite touch on father is that it, our whole understanding of the immune system is actually shaped by vaccination the immunology started with edward jenner and so everything we've we think we know about the immune system is is colored by uh this artificial induction of disease and so we don't we don't really have a great understanding of how the body works um, outside of, of manipulating it in this way. And so it, we don't really even know what, what would be medically beneficial at, at, a, at a, um, an individual level. Sorry, my cat's a little distracting here. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, um, uh, you know, to look at to look at populations. I mean, it, it's it, you can't claim that that vaccines are are wholly beneficial. I don't think you know for the reasons that we've kind of gone through. So I won't beat that dead horse. But um, you you do see changes in the disease landscape for sure. But those changes come at often at a cost. Right, and I think again next week again a little teaser here. To sort of, we'll sort of discuss the ideology behind uh, vaccinations uh, and the mindset of vaccinations um, and how the fact that we've done a lot of things, you know, in terms of nature out there that God has created and we've sort of fooled with it just a bit. We've modified it. We've 
intervened and sort of denatured things. Um, right. So I think, you know, I think we, we will, we'll cover that a little bit next week. There is someone who asked a question, Pam, who says, please discuss the question of rabies. And then it says a nearly 100% fatal disease. The vaccine is derived from abortal fetal cell lines. Right. So this is one of those instances and the Pontifical Academy of Life document does, you know, give leave to use aborted fetal cell derived vaccines in instances of, of pressing um, concern for safety of the individual and safety of, of the society, right? So this is obviously like if you get rabies, you're going to die. So in that case, a strong case could be made to if the only vaccine that is available to you is the one in the aborted fetal cell lines, the, the document gives permission to use that and, and not have to, you know, die a martyr for the cause. Um, but, you know, rabies is a vaccine that is not given on the, the, the schedule of vaccines. It's only given generally when someone contracts rabies because the vaccine itself is rather unsafe. Um, so, so they don't, they don't give it. Most people aren't exposed to that. They don't necessarily need that. It's, it's often only given to people who, um, would be exposed to it in the normal line of work or after they've been exposed to it. So in, in those cases, I would think there's a much, much stronger case than with rubella, um, to, to make a concession for using those vaccines. But, um, you know, there is an ethical alternative available to rabies in the United States. So, you know, obviously if you're, you're having just been bit by a rabid dog, you may not remember that, but if you're getting it in the course of the normal line of duty, you, you have a moral obligation to request the ethical alternative. Right, right. And that leads to this question. Perhaps I, I'm confused, but I thought it was axiomatic that a good could not come from an evil act. Um, is that not true? Um, well, I mean, obviously you can't do, a, um, uh, I mean, I, I, I guess there's unintended sort of good that might come. The, the, the fact is, is that but the, what the Holy See is saying, I think, is that this is an evil thing that, this, this is again, the aborted fetal tissues being used to generate vaccines. This is an evil thing. But as you get more and more remote from it, um, you know, the cooperation in that is less and less and less. And the fact is, is that sometimes you tolerate an evil um, and, you know, as the Vatican said, you know, for the sake of protecting that person who might be endangered or protecting the larger society in general, on a temporary basis, knowing that that's the only option available, uh, hoping that eventually down the road, quickly, it will be changed. But as we learn from Pam, right. it's not going to change. Right. Um, so I think the, 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 the I think the the, the, the new sort of <clears throat> mindset should be uh, that we morally object to. Again, remember what Pam said. Uh, in some cases, again, you know, the children. Be careful here. Um, children delivered via C-section, then dissected, and in some cases with their heart still beating. Um, Hopefully that makes it graphic enough to show that uh, this has to be objected to um, and not just, you know, encouraging and help us look for, no, I think, I think a little bit more of a strong, because it's, it's, it's going to perpetuate itself. Right. Someone asks a good question here. 
I think I know this person. Um, are we hurting or lessening our immunity by all this overconcern for sterilizing surfaces? Hand sanitizer. Yes. Uh, well, there's uh, long been in vogue this idea of the hygiene hypothesis, which is that we're sicker now. We tend to have more autoimmune conditions and allergies and those sorts of things because we aren't exposed to pathogens in our environment. Um, and I mean, this hypothesis has a lot of traction within the, the modern medical community. So I would say in general, over-sterilization is a bad idea. Um, and I, I had a, a young parishioner ask me a few days ago if it was okay to stop uh, sterilizing everything that came in from the store or came in from packages. And I told her that I haven't been doing that at any point during this whole scare. And, and um, she sort of looked at me like, oh, oh, well, maybe... Maybe you won't die if you don't sterilize your services. Um, but I would say in general, just being inside is bad for your immune system. Um, being outside, being exposed to uh, sunshine and fresh air is, is very helpful, as, as well as being exposed to the pathogens that are in the environment. Your immune system um, learns from the pathogens it encounters, even if they don't actually cause disease even if you clear them very quickly. And, it, and that shapes how your immune system responds to, to future assaults. Excellent. Now, um, again, this, this would be, I think, the, like a big objection, Pam, as we go through the last few here. Okay. Um, again, people are looking at vaccinations. They think that it's saved you know, untold millions of lives and so forth. So, so what are the medical and financial costs of not vaccinating? Wouldn't it be a, like a, a decimation of the human race? Well, it depends on the vaccine. So for example, if you, you've been bitten by a rabid dog and you don't vaccinate, the medical cost is that you die. Um, you know, but, but with vaccines like measles or, or mumps or rubella or chickenpox, um, you know, the cost and, and one of the things that, that, that actually caused them to push the chickenpox vaccine into development was the idea that it was going to save costs in terms of time lost from work for people who had to nurse their sick children. And there was a kind of a whole cost benefit analysis that was done. And um, they, they thought, okay, well, this is going to save people in terms of, of sick time and in terms of overall productivity and it's it's going to be better it, it turns out that when you factor in the cost of the lowered age of shingles um we have had no net gain in terms of of the medical costs for chicken pox um so that that doesn't um uh it doesn't it doesn't necessarily make any difference at all. And, you know, one of the things I've come across in my research as well is there's, there's papers in the peer reviewed scientific literature that show that children that are not vaccinated or are under vaccinated actually have fewer visits to the emergency room and they have fewer inpatient and outpatient hospital visit or physician visits. Um, so they're actually potentially saving, you know, a lot of medical costs and financial costs. But then you also have the cases of, of children who do, you know, die from whooping cough or something like that, or are, are damaged um, in the third world or damaged by polio, although wild polio is only present in Afghanistan and Pakistan currently. And all of the other cases of paralytic polio in the world are caused by the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So that's actually outstripping the cases that are caused by wild polio at this point. Um, the, the World Health so, Organization but, reported so, that last year. There were so more if you could, cases. If you, could re if you could repeat this, you're saying that some of these vaccines actually give the very virus that they're supposed to protect from. 
Yes. So uh, these are the the ones that are the live viral vaccines, and so they can they can. Uh, there's a phenomenon called shedding that happens, especially with with these vaccines. So the person who's been vaccinated can actually pass the disease on to people who are susceptible because it's replicating in their bodies. Um, and even if it's a weakened or aversion, it can cause. So for example, measles vaccine can cause something called atypical measles. Um, which is uh, measles, I think, without the rash. I, I, this, I read about this about eight months ago, so I'm forgetting the exact specifics on it. But, but it, it can cause a, a form of measles. And the polio, the oral polio vaccine, this is no longer the one used in the United States. Um, it, it did get pulled because it was, it, since 1979, the only cases of paralytic polio in the U.S. have either come in from outside of the country or been caused by the vaccine. And this is this vaccine is still used in the third world because it's much cheaper than the one that we use here in the U.S. And it that's it's another way that this you know administration of vaccines in third world is is wicked and unconscionable. And we know that this vaccine causes paralytic polio, and yet we still give it to children. And and in India they do it every year. Um, repeat this this vaccination, and they they have. Uh, they've increased the number of cases of, of paralytic polio because of the pulses of this vaccine that come through every year. And this is, this is reported by the World Health Organization. This isn't, you know, secret news from, you know, Mother Earth Network or something like that. Yeah, you know, right. this, and it may be just to, I, I, cause I, I, just to cover it now, the, the vaccine includes some contaminants, which, you know, like you said, like aluminum is sometimes in there. Uh, other sort of, if you get it from right. a fetal cell line, are there human is are there human materials in there from another human being? And yes. then also, you mentioned to me this afternoon we talked about this um, that they might be introducing other things into the vaccine to continue their ideology of maybe lowering the population, um, maybe some yes. sterilizing elements within these vaccines in the third world countries. Yes, so um, I did. I did mention that that I've I've been in uh, direct communication with Dr. Wohamein Ngare, who um, was one of the physicians in Kenya who identified that the tetanus vaccine was laced with HCG, which um, the World Health Organization has been experimenting on birth control vaccines since the 70s, I believe, and this is one of the combinations they found effective was tetanus toxoid and HCG together, um, and the vaccine campaign was targeted to women of childbearing age and uh, a number of them were vaccinated. The vaccines themselves were actually guarded by armed guards and uh, Dr. Wahome and his colleagues had to um, uh, obtain a few samples, you know, almost uh, surreptitiously because they were, they were not going to be allowed to test them. And all of the samples that they tested contained HCG. And of course the World Health Organization produced some um, vials that did not contain HCG but had the same label on them. Um, but these were not the vials that were actually being used to vaccinate people. And I, I believe later the World Health Organization acknowledged that there was HCG in, in um, at least some of the vials. I don't know that they acknowledged that they were in all of them, but um, it, there, there is, um, there has been this has been done in third world countries more than once. I mean, this is just right. one of the most recent uh, instances that I have, I have knowledge of. And then regarding your other question about um, contaminants, 
the the chickenpox vaccine in particular, um, it, it has more fetal DNA in it than it has actual chickenpox vaccine active ingredient. And this really becomes a huge problem because um, the, the since the DNA is human, it can line up with the DNA in the healthy individual and it can actually swap places. This is called homologous recombination. And it doesn't take a very high dose of DNA to do this. So this is, is most likely happening at the dosage that you would be receiving in a chickenpox vaccine um, within individuals, at least to a limited extent. And it it's... Um, since the the cells have been immortalized, they've been um, infected with viruses, and their their genomes have been adapted. Now you're introducing what are called de novo mutations into an individual that the homologous recombination occurs in, and this can cause all sorts of of problems with that individual and uh, in, in their health. And um, aluminum is present in other vaccines. It's it's what's called an adjuvant. So the the vaccines that are subunits that are just pieces of the virus or the bacteria, they're, they're not very effective because your body clears that very, very rapidly. So to generate a, a stronger immune response, you need to add something in there. In some cases to generate an immune response at all, you need to add something in there that's, that's a helper. And so these are called adjuvants. And um, we know that aluminum is neurotoxic. Um, we, I mean, people worry about aluminum foil and aluminum in their baking soda. Being worried about aluminum is not a novel phenomenon that's just come about with vaccines in the past few years. Um, you know, and, and from what I understand, human beings and, and, and other animals as well, they don't have a natural method for eliminating aluminum from the body because there isn't a natural method for aluminum to get into the body. And so aluminum is actually very, um, very easily permeable across the blood-brain barrier, and it tends to accumulate in nervous tissue, and it can cause neuro neurological damage. And um, the dose in some vaccines is up to 25 times the amount in terms of milligram per kilogram to the children that we're giving it to um, of what would be considered a toxic dose. And if you drop one of these vials of vaccines and it breaks on the floor of the doctor's office, in some states you actually have to have a hat, you have to evacuate the building and have a hazmat team come and clean up the broken vaccine. But we're injecting this into... So, uh, so there's a lot of junk that yeah. is it is contaminants that are going to be put into you due to vaccines. Uh, there's going to be some issues there for sure. Yeah. And, and, and which ones depend on which vaccine and, and some vaccines are, are more dangerous than others. Um, for sure. They're, you know, the HPV vaccine and the flu vaccine top the list in terms of, of which ones are most dangerous um, in terms of adverse reactions. But um, you know, like I said, there's no risk free option here. And, you know, the decision that individuals are going to have to, you know, be faced with to a certain extent is, do I not vaccinate and take the risk of my child getting the disease, or do I vaccinate and take the risk of my child being vaccine injured? And, you know, the, the conversation we're having here, I hope, is, is, you know, just making people more aware that, that you, you cannot simply vaccinate and think that there, there's no risk involved. And, and even more important than that, the, the, what's being pushed in terms of, you know, we have to vaccinate, it's for the common good. It, it's not actually really helping us um, as a population. It's, it's causing other problems that are, that are kind of being ignored. Very good. So someone uh, wrote about uh, sort of like, let's say the modern sort of membership of the church, including the hierarchy, sort of being very pro-vaccine. Is this sort of part of the, let's say, problems uh, of understanding or, or even some 
maybe embracing some errors of the modern world and sort of enlightenment errors. And so again, next week, uh, we hope to discuss maybe some of the ideologies behind um, uh, vaccinations or the notion of it, uh, which I think could, could, would answer a question like that. Um, person writes about success rate for adult stem cells shows much more promise. Well, I guess uh, that's true. People talked about. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've heard that. I haven't, you know, I haven't read the scientific papers on that. So I'm not as willing to make a definitive statement about that as I am about some of these other things. But, but what I have heard suggests that embryonic stem cells do not behave very well in vitro. They tend to, um, or in vivo, they tend to be tumorogenic. Um, and, and cause other unintended consequences and unintended problems, whereas adult stem cells tend to behave a little bit better. Right. So, you know, there really, there really is very little justification other than ideological for using aborted fetal or embryonic cells. Good. Someone asks, and this is good because we're talking about how fast this vaccine is being uh, brought to the market and uh, maybe not, maybe, <laughs> don't get into any conspiracies right now, but um, is there a problem when you are so urgent to this warp speed sort of production of there, the vaccine? There's a huge problem. And, and really this problem is, is in, in some sense ubiquitous in, in vaccines. And um, I'm actually in the process of writing uh, a short book that will be published by the Colby Center in the near-ish future that, that documents you know, all the references that I'm, I'm, I'm talking about right now. But one of the things that's, that's in the paper is, is a table um, which I compiled from data available in a book by Dr. Dr. Richard Muscovitz. Um, I believe it's called uh, Vaccines, a Reappraisal. And he looks at how long uh, vaccine safety testing solicits adverse reactions. So, so how, how long is the, is the official safety trial looking for any possible negative side effects of this vaccine? In some vaccines, it's as short as three days. And the longest uh, solicitation of adverse reactions is 42 days. So these periods are not very long to see if there are any negative side effects associated with this vaccine. And as we're gonna talk about next time, you know, a lot of the negative side effects associated with vaccine tend to be autoimmune in nature. And these sorts of things don't develop in three days or 42 days or 14 days or seven days, or you know, the, the number of days that these people are allowing you to, to um, submit adverse reactions. And then even when adverse reactions are submitted, I believe in uh, the case of Gardasil, and maybe I should actually look this up in my paper so I don't say the wrong number. Um, uh, but, oh shoot. Um, I know it's, it's over 95% of the adverse re reactions that were reported during the safety trial were thrown out by the researchers. It may have even been 99% of the reactions that were reported. They were just like, no, that doesn't count. No, that doesn't count. No, that doesn't count. So if you throw out all the adverse reactions, of course your vaccine's safe, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and this included deaths. There were a number of deaths during the safety trials of, of, of the vaccine. And um, the, it's just the, the idea that you could safety test something like this in under a year is, is not really reasonable. And that you could efficacy test it. I mean, the, the British Journal pointed out a problem. You know, the virus seems to be going away. So how are we going to test its efficacy? I, if we don't have anybody infected with the virus. I mean, 
you know, so we really won't, we won't know in a year if this is reasonable or not. I don't think there's any way to know by the end of 2020. Sure. So what we're getting kind of late in the game here uh, for yeah. this talk and I appreciate Pam, I, I, you know, um, so I'm going to have to skip the other questions and there were, there were a number of them and they were all very good. Um, so I'm going to show Pam these questions um, and maybe we can touch upon it, kind of touch upon some of them next week. Um, sure. And next week, um, again, we're going to discuss the ideologies behind um, vaccinations. And in a way, it's like a religion, um, like a dogma. It's the only way that we can be safe. That, that's sort of what we're told. Um, that will include looking at enlightenment principles that maybe are a foundation for the whole vaccination mentality. Um, but also maybe some evolutionary principles are present, as well as even eugenics. And I think you all know what that is, you know, sort of the building the supreme race, right? Um, eliminating uh, those who are tainted, I guess, in the gene pool. Um, also, we hope to discuss government involvement. And it's been ha past history, as Pam was telling me today, past history of, of coercion regarding forced vaccinations and penalties for not doing it, including jail. Um, and we hope to cover the connection of vaccinations uh, with, with possibly with autism um, and with autoimmune disorders where your immune system sort of turns on you. Again, vaccines promise a lot, but there might be a lot of unintended uh, uh, consequences too. So. We look forward to that next week, eight o'clock, we'll, uh, we'll get together. And I can't thank Pam Acker enough for her efforts. And remember, we're gonna post eventually some references that you can use. And, and, and just remember that that promised small little book that uh, that grows each day that Pam is preparing for the Colby <laughs> Creation. It is rather growing each day. Um, Spread it out as a paper and now it's a book. <laughs> yes, yes. So we're gonna have that um, that those references and uh, some, some resources that you can look up. And then eventually that paper will be published and I'm sure it will be available uh, for, for reading. Uh, but let's end with a prayer for today. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen. amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it, it was, was in the beginning, now shall be world without end. Amen. May be a blessing during the session our blessed mother, good Saint Joseph, Benedictio Nepotentis Patris et Filii, et Spiritus Sanctus et Supervos, et Maniat Semper. Amen. Thank you, Pam. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye.